Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Um, friends, thank you so much for being here today. We're thrilled to have this amazing learning about this great new book, Becoming a Soulful Parent. I am posting in the chat the, the link to the book so you can check out this book. Uh, and if you're not in the Zoom right now, you can just Google it on Amazon, Soulful Parent, Becoming a Soulful Parent um, by Dasi Berkowitz. And we are thrilled to, um, to be with her today. We know many of you are listening remotely and so you'll have the chance to pause your recording to engage in meditations and writing um, and, uh, and use that opportunity to pause and engage in the activities. We're here with Dasi Berkowitz, who is a sought after educator and facilitator and founder of Ayeka's Becoming a Soulful Parents program. Her groundbreaking approach to education has been enthusiastically received by scores of Jewish community centers and synagogues since the program launched in 2015. She's the author of a new book, our topic today, Becoming a Soulful Parent, A Path to the Wisdom Within, that came out in March 2021. She currently lives in Jerusalem with her husband, Leon, and their three children, Mazel Tov on the recent Simcha. And um, I recently read this book and loved it and hope um, all of you who are parents or um, hope to be parents one day will also consider engaging with this. Stasi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Rav Shmuley. It's, um, it's really a pleasure to be with all of you. Uh, and uh, we were just chatting a little bit before this went live that, you know, the high holidays are coming up and Rosh Hashanah is coming up and there's no spirituality and kind of spiritual practice more than our families and our family lives. And whether it's as a parent ourselves or it's as uh, the position of being a child, you know, we're all children of, of folks um, or being a sibling, that the, the intimacy of our family relationships where we just show up in the most real way ever is, um, is really the, the laboratory for us to do so much of our growth and development as, um, as people and as human beings. So, so I'm really delighted to bring um, a conversation and to begin uh, to grow and develop an awareness around what becoming a soulful parent looks like, means, um, and can, can really mean for each of us. I think that one of the things that I find, I don't know how many of you have this experience, that you have like a stack of parenting books at your bedside table, and they're all of the kind of how-to variety, you know? It's like how to get your kids to cooperate, how to feed them healthy foods, you know, in five minutes flat, how to, you know, um, how to get them to like get more organized for school, you know, school's just starting now. And all of these how-tos, whenever I've read them, I don't know about you, but they've always left me feeling lacking. You know, this like, the sense that everyone has the script, everyone has the right way of doing things, and there must be a way that I just missed the memo. You know, I just didn't get the, the kind of the instruction book, um, you know, when I left the hospital, like everyone else seemed to have gotten. And, and I, I, I developed this program at IECA, um, the Center for Soulful Education, because I realized that a different approach was needed. You know, it wasn't um, an approach where we could come in as experts and say, um, you know, here are all the answers, but instead to be able to turn things a little bit on its head and say, let's search out and seek out the questions together. You know, what would it mean for us to enter parenting spaces where we would say, you know, there's not a one size fits all um, as as well researched and as as so many other books are um, that we need to there's something there's a nuance that's missing and that nuance is that no situation is going to fit everyone, um, but that we need to be mindful and attuned to how I'm unique 
how my child is unique and how the situation that we're in is a unique one. And I think that that approach is really at the core of what it means to become soulful, right? This idea that we all have a soul, that that soul was um, that given to us in the religious imagination from God, that there is a unique and divine spark and sense in each of us and also in each of our children. And that instead of trying to always figure out how can I get my kid to behave and to, you know, do things the way that make me look good or, you know, make our system, you know, work well and post really awesome pictures on Facebook. Um, instead to become more tuned to what's unique about my child, um, what's, how is who they are and how they're showing up in the world, a reflection of this God-given stamp or this God-given quality of their soul um, as it's pre presenting itself now. Um, so, so we all have, we can all have stories to tell and we all have, you know, either children or grandchildren or we're the child, you know, and we all have parents. And, and I, I said to my son recently, actually, I said, do you know what? You just have everything you need. You have everything you need. And you know, all of the qualities that you have are just you. Um, and whether they, you know, get on my nerves and make it hard to parent, you know, whether him or, or any of my other kids, I have three kids here in Jerusalem. Um, that's not the point. You know, the point is how can I grow in a mindfulness and an awareness of, of who they are? Um, so, so becoming a soulful parent is really about first the process of becoming that it's not ever arriving. We've never arrived. We're constantly in the process of growing and developing. And as you know, it says at the very start of the of Genesis, right, it was evening, and it was morning. And that was one day, right, the murkiness and darkness of evening um, can can yield, you know, a next day that will be lighter and brighter, and it's all one, you know, so that even if something was difficult, you know, in one period of our, our one stage, the the morning um, or the, you know, that to believe that there will be light is, is what it means to kind of come into a becoming mindset um, in our families to know, I mean, we're now in the process of renewal of Elul and Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And if, you know, there was the, the biggest gift that, that, um, that we've given to the world, this process can teach the world is the process of believing in tshuva, of return, of always growing, of always becoming. Um, and that's really what, what, what is at the start of what does it mean to become a soulful parent, right? To recognize process, to also recognize, you know, the uniqueness and the individuality of each of us and each of our children. And also the parent piece is to actually focus a little bit more on us as parents, right? Not so many parenting books and so many parenting approaches are about kids, right? If it's about my kids and I'll absolutely do it. If I'll figure out how to do things better with my kids or more activities for my kids, I'm there. I'll read that blog and I'll like, oh, click open that newsletter. Um, but what would it mean for us to actually take time to explore our inner lives as parents, you know? The, what's hard, what's, what makes us overjoyed. Um, and so that, that's, that's you know, a little bit about the context of becoming a soulful parent. Um, before we get in, what my plan is for the next hour is we're going to, I wanna um, transition and do a short meditation um, to start to kind of bring us into um, our inner lives a little bit. And then, um, and then I'm gonna read a little bit from, from my book. Um, I happen to have a copy right here, <laughs> Becoming a Soulful Parent. And then we're gonna do a little bit of reflection, uh, written reflection. So if you are around a pen and a paper, then um, grab that. And if you're, you know, if you're listening to this a little bit later or you're listening to it now on the Facebook Live, um, you know, you can also grab a piece of paper as well. It's great to have everyone on Zoom and, and wherever else you're listening to this. And um, we're gonna do a little bit of reflective writing. Uh, and then Rav Shmuley and I will engage in a little bit of a dialogue um, and feel free to write into the chat and, and share your, your comments, both on the Facebook feed as well as here on the Zoom room. 
Sound good? Um, okay, so what I invite you to do is to get comfortable um, wherever you're seated. Um, if you're driving the car, do not do this exercise. You can just listen to me and you can, you know, do it when you stop the car, or pull over the side of the road. Um, but, you know, get comfortable. And, um, and I want you to, to close your eyes for a minute, if that's comfortable for you. Put your feet on the ground and your hands on your sides or on your, on your legs. And I want you to take a couple of deep breaths. I find that sometimes someone invites me to just stop and take a breath. I'm so grateful for that invitation. As parents so often, we're just busy and we're running around so much of the time. Just take a, another breath. And I'm always um, struck by the word um, nishima. Nishima is a Hebrew word for breath. And it's also closely linked to the Hebrew word nishama, which means soul. So every time we take a deep breath, We kind of expand our inner cavity where our soul resides deep within us. We expand our capacity, we, we expand our recognition of this very special thing, this nishama. And it says in the beginning of Genesis that, that God breathed the breath of life into Adam and he became a living being. That Adam, the first human being, the first earthling, was, was simply an earthling, simply matter. And only in that moment when God breathed the breath of life, Nishmat Chaim, he became a nefesh chaya, he became a living being. So this thing, this breath keeps us alive makes us alive, our nishama makes us alive, who we are, vital. I'm also um, thinking a lot about Rosh Hashanah coming up and Elul, this month that we're in that, that finishes soon on Monday night with the beginning of Rosh Hashanah. And there's this beautiful image of God who is a melech besadeh, who's like a king in the field. But in Rosh Hashanah, we have this image of God as um, a king, coronate God, um, whatever that metaphor evokes for you. But now in this time, God is more intimate, more imminent, right next to us, just in the field. And I want you to just think for a moment of that kind of closeness, of walking with, who in your own life are you walking with? Are you walking together with? Or do you wanna be walking together with for support, for love, for care in these days leading up to Rosh Hashanah? Just take a minute to visualize that for yourself. What does it feel like to have that sense of closeness, that sense of imminence? someone that you love deeply. Could be God, could be someone else in your life. And what might it mean for you to take a step closer in the direction of that person? What would you need to do? When you're ready, we'll open our eyes and just kind of hold on to that, that sense of imminence. We'll join back together. So 
So I think a part of, um, of soulfulness, of a soulful personality is, is always kind of moving toward closeness, right? Moving toward intimacy, imminence, connection, deeper connection, and um, expanding our capacity for that and really trying to expand our capacity for that. And I find that for me, one of the ways um, that that's possible is through prayer. And I'm thinking about it now because, you know, the, the high holidays are coming up and this is a time when many of us are gonna log many hours in synagogue or in prayer spaces, whether it's at home or in, in outdoors or maybe in a, a, over Zoom or on a synagogue setting. Or even just thinking about the concept if traditional prayer doesn't speak to you. And, and there's a way in which I feel sometimes that my soul yearns for that closeness because so much else is going on as a parent that's so chaotic and is happening so fast. And I'm like, oftentimes I find with my three kids that I like don't even have like, I can't even respond fast enough. So many things are happening. And so to see the time that's coming up before us as just a little bit slower time, right? That we can gather ourselves, that we can consider our lives we can consider the intimacies um, that we want to that we want to to grow in. So I want to spend um, a minute just to to read from a chapter that I have in this book about prayer, and um, and and then we're going to do a little bit of reflection. Prayer, connecting to a need to the need to yearn. My husband asks me the same question each time I arrive about an hour after him to synagogue on Saturday mornings. How was it this morning? The question is innocent enough. He wants to receive a general update on our morning's activity. Of course, I could meet his innocent question with a generous and satisfying reply. It was good. My answer though, is to sigh and to focus on my Siddur or prayer book. I take in the Hebrew letters, dependable, unmoving, unchanging. I need their earthbound pull, the heaviness of ancient time to steady a morning filled with the dizzying motion of my children, spinning in their own vortexes and striking out at one another every so often just for the fun of it. Why do you guys fight all the time? I asked Yael one Saturday morning. She looked at me with a grin of a preteen, slightly supersized on her young face. She was about six at the time. Because it's fun. Why can't a good old game of solitaire or reading a book be considered fun activities for my three kids? Our home can be a pressure cooker. On Saturday mornings, when we all begin to rattle, we just barely manage to zip, button, and lace ourselves up and head outside for a 10-minute walk to meet Leon, who has been at synagogue since its doors opened earlier that morning. Here in this sacred space, surrounded by white walls, smooth floors, and the friendly hum of prayers, the pressure is released and my children's energies simmer. There is space and light, and there are other children to play with. Sometimes we get there late, just in time for the end of services, quote unquote. On one such occasion, as members began to clear their chairs and prayer books, I clutched mine tightly. I needed to pray. And as my children and husband joined their friends at Kiddush in the main hall, I left them and the general grown-up chatter and made my way back to the synagogue space. I found a quiet spot near the door that opened into the green foliage of early autumn. I stayed put, the words and the letters drawing me in. Instead of taking the words apart, I remembered theologian Henri Henri Nguyen writing, we should bring them together in our innermost being. We should wonder which words are spoken directly to us and connect directly with our most personal story. My eyes were pulled to the words Ahava, which begins the prayer Ahava Rabbah, or a great love. In the prayer book, this prayer immediately precedes the Shema, Judaism's central de- declaration of faith. I started to play with the word in my mouth and was struck by the vowels. Ah, va. There's so much breath in that word. It's a word that both starts and end with, ends with ah. In the middle, there is a v sound, a vet. 
And when you add a dot in the middle, the letter becomes a bet. Bet as in sheet, the first word of the Hebrew Bible in the beginning. Over the span of that morning, I had sounded the first vowel, ah, with exasperation and was waiting for the ah, the moment of release. In the middle, bet, a new beginning, brought on by the prayer that entered me. The words Ahava Rabbah opened within me a new awareness, as if to say, this great love of yours can hold everything. It can hold the arg of the children's bickering and the ah of tenderness too. It can hold the frustration and the release. This prayer reminded me that even though I can shift quickly between frustration and release, I need to pay attention to the bet. At the climax of the transition, if I listen, is a chance for a new beginning. So I want us to think about um, prayer in our own lives. When do we need to pray? You know, what's that experience like for us? When are we drawn to it? So what I'm going to do is in the in the chat, I am going to put um, a few Ayaka questions. And Ayaka is, um, it's, it's a question. It's the first question of the Hebrew Bible. It's uh, the question that God asks Adam when Adam is in, um, after the incident of eating from the, the forbidden fruit. And God asks of Adam, Ayaka, where are you? Like, where are you? Where is your best self in this moment? Why did you, why, you know, why did you, um, why did you falter? You know, why did you sin? Why did you do what I, I didn't ask you to do? But this Ayeka, um, this question is really about us kind of asking ourselves and opening up ourselves to, to questions that can help us explore our inner lives. Parker Palmer once said, he's a, um, a, a Quaker and an activist and a writer and an educator. And he, um, he once wrote that sometimes when we're listening to lectures, we're really busy like writing notes on what other people are saying. And he said, don't do that. Turn the notebook around and take notes on your own life, um, lest you forget that you ever had the thought. So that's what I want us to do. I want us to take notes on our own life for a moment. Um, and I put three questions in the chat. And these questions are, when was the last time you felt the impulse to pray? What were the circumstances of your life at the time? The second question is, what word or phrase, if repeated over and over again as a mantra, would give you a sense of calm and perspective and even direction? And the third is to start saying that word or phrase or mantra and to be open to its impact on you. So to be honest, it's only two questions. The last one's a, a kind of directive. Um, but ask yourself those, two, those first two questions. Um, we're going to give about three or four minutes for this. Um, so take out a pen, take out paper. If you, um, you know, if you're on the video, you can shut your video off just to have a little bit more privacy. Um, and then we're going to come back in two or three minutes. When was the last time you felt the impulse to pray and what were the circumstances? And what's the word or phrase if repeated over and over again as a mantra would give you a sense of calm, perspective and a sense of direction. Okay, so take a couple of minutes and then we'll, we'll rejoin each other. I'm gonna come back together. Um, and for those of you who, who are with us, um, I hope that you, um, you enjoyed the writing exercise. Um, and if, if anyone wants to write in the chat of something that was evoked for you when you wrote, um, I, you know, or, or a response or a reflection that you might have, we'll be delighted to, to check in about it. And I wonder if Shmuley, um, if there's anything, you know, if you want to start us off, I know that you are driving. So, so I, I'm, I hope you didn't write anything down. Um, but even in your own life or mind or time, you know, if anything was evoked by this idea of just the impulse to pray, you know, kind of what were the circumstances? What helps you? Is it the traditional liturgy? Is it something else? Um, if there's anything that, that kind of jumps out for you. Yeah. First of all, I'm loving all this so far. It's so much on my mind leading up to 
Rosh Hashanah and feeling this imperative to get clarity here. And I love the connection of tefillah, a prayer to um, to this work, uh, this avoda, uh, this service. And uh, um, I think that um, there is like the formal prayer I do with my daughters. I can't get my son so interested yet, but my daughters love it. And it's our most connected time by far. Like when I'm in a prayer experience with them, they sing with me and they're connected to me and I'm connected to them. Uh, there's that, but then there's this other kind of prayerful experience, which I like to think of as like an internal homecoming um, of just like a radical presence, which emerges from going to Shema, uh, going to that soulful place. And in going there, going to the internal home, um, I'm able to be present in a different way. And that feels prayerful because it's going to that soul place. Um, and things emanate from there, even if they're not words. And so I really like that direction you're moving us towards here. And I think I might start incorporating Ayeka in a sense to kind of remind I love that. I love that idea. You know, this idea of this kind of um, coming home and this presence and it, it, what it reminds me of is this, um, this, this contrast between these two modalities, I think, that we find ourselves in a lot of the times. And it's um, like a soulful place and an ego place. And I always find it so interesting when in traditional kind of synagogue spaces, um, there can be a lot of ego there, you know, and that ego place is, what am I wearing? What's everyone else wearing? What's, you know, the rabbi talking about? Is it any good? What's, you know, how's everyone behaving? Are the kids too noisy? You know, um, who do they think they are that they're got that, you know, <laughs> you know, that position as opposed to some other, you know, there are so much politics, you know, and, and kind of ego voices that go on for us. I think sometimes in prayer spaces that can be confusing, honestly. And I think, you know, the, the exercise of sometimes really quieting all of that, right? And saying, we're simply together. We're together in a group, whether that group is, you know, that group of your, um, of your family and in family settings or with a minyan or with, you know, another, you know, a, a, other folks together to almost to have it be this, um, the, this other, this space that just feels different, that it feels different than any other time. You know, that that time when you're like sitting there and, 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 and singing and dancing and praying with your girls, um, you know, that it is just, it's a different modality and it's a different like, um, it's almost like a different dimension, you know, and how can we create more of those times, you know, and sometimes it can be for a, you know, a long period of time. And sometimes it can be as simple as the moment you know, that we put our kids to sleep at night or the moment that we wake up in the morning. Um, you know, when we say, thank you that we're here, that we're alive, that we can have a new day. It can just be a moment, um, but that it feels like there's a shift instead of the like, do you have all the stuff that you, you know, that you need it for your lunch and, you know, your homework and all that. Um, so, so I'm also, I'm thinking about that in terms of our own prayer lives and prayer experiences. Um, I see that Julia is writing in and for people who are in the Zoom room, please feel free to be open, uh, to open your mics and open your, um, your screens. So Julia writes, the last time I felt the impulse to pray was seeing the shadows on the desert mountains when the sun was low in the sky. I think that's beautiful, right? This, um, you know, it's like this, you know, like thank God for like Breshit, for just like the beauty of, of the created world. Um, and I think that so much of the time we're, we're inspired by nature and thank God for that, you know, with... Um, with how we relate to nature now, you know, as sometimes it's just a pass through to get to our next destination. Um, but to be able to take those moments and those awesome spaces. 
Um, that's beautiful. Thank you, Julia. If anyone else wants to write in or any other moments when they felt, you know, the need to pray, um, whether it's, you know, for that shevach, you know, just that praise of what they see around them. Sometimes it's it's because of a sense of mitzuka or a sense of um, of despair, you know, that, that we need to pray. Um, there are all sorts of motivations that we have. If there's anyone else that wants to write in, you're welcome to, to do that. Um, and I'll interrupt, you know, as I go. Um, you know, I think that one thing that Rokshmuli was talking about was, was really the experience of bringing prayer to our kids. And I think that there's, there's that it's always a question, right? Like all these things that we want for our children. Um, and I think that when we think about becoming soulful parents, um, what you said, Shmuley, was was very deep in that it almost the sense of, and I wonder with your son who said, you know, you want to kind of bring along to it and he might not be there yet, that, um, you know, starting with ourselves and modeling our experience with prayer and, you know, them seeing us in prayerful spaces and prayerful moments. Um, I always have this experience with my own kids that, you know, this, the standing, the traditional standing silent meditation is always meant to be not interrupted, you know, like you're standing with your feet together, you're taking the steps back, you're taking the steps forward. My kids are constantly like, where are the pretzels, Ema? You know what I mean? Like, where's my water bottle? Like, I have a boo-boo. Can I like eat that snack? You know, it's like, I don't know why it's always around food, but, and I'm like, ah, do not see that I'm speaking to my creator and like you're in my way, you know, which is like a little bit ridiculous because, you know, they're created beings and I should recognize their godliness and all of that. And with that, I think that there's something profound about saying, you know, a moment like, like this is important to me and this kind of concentrated time and space um, is, is important and to model that and for them to just see us in that space, um, I think will really make an impression on them. Um, you know, the way that many of us have images or recollections of, you know, being maybe under a father's talit, you know, our children might have the recollections of being under a mother's talit, you know, or a prayer shawl, um, or a father's talit. And, um, you know, and I think that that, that can be really profound. Um, or is there, are there other ways that you found of kind of bringing prayer life to your kids that have been, you know, successful or, or even challenging? Um, in your own experience? I myself to go there. Was that directed to me? Yeah. I mean, I uh, okay. not anyone else to jump in. <laughs> but while I have your attention. Um, well, yeah, please do raise your hands if you, if you want to jump in so we can see that or just unmute yourself. But um, yeah, I, but first of all, I, I totally relate to the question of interruptions, child interruptions into fila and feel like I tend to pray in the kitchen uh, and, and that's where the questions about food also come. Um, and I'm always deciding which age do I wanna make clear I'm responsive to them and at what age do I wanna make clear that they're gonna to have to wait. Um, and so I very much relate to that tension um, and always think about Abraham at the tent um, deciding to break, break um, divine consciousness in order to respond to the human need. And I go back and forth with how to relate to that. but. I think one of the things that that you're sharing is is raising for me is the issue of rut zone. That I think a lot of difficult parenting moments for me have to deal with rut zone. Like there's clash of will, mm -hmm. clash of will, in lots of different ways. And I think of tefillah as like a little bit of a realignment towards rut zone Hashem, so to speak. Like, um, let me think how to use less religiousy terms for that. Like, sort of the um, our purpose in the world, our, you know, divine purpose, divine will in the world, letting go of ego to tap into that. And I try to think like, how does tapping into, into Ratzon Hashem, into Filah, inform a clash of Ratzon in the home? And I wonder if you have any thoughts on that bridge. Hmm. You know, I think that it's, um, I always feel like the question of is like in service of what? 
is this thing that I'm doing, you know, that, um, you know, and I, I do go back to this, the ego and soul paradigm a lot, um, because, because I think that, you know, I think boundaries are important. You know, I think saying no is actually really, really important. I think, um, I think, you know, sometimes this, this sense of I'm the parent and I say so, and it, that's why is, you know, is very harsh at times. And if it's because it, if it's in service of like being respected and having our children listen to us and do what we want them to do because it makes our lives easier, um, that's one thing. If it's for the purpose of there's actually a really important value um, in this, right? There's a really important value in waiting. There's really an important value in delay, right? Um, delayed gratification. I mean, I remember um, um, in in blessing of a skinned knee, this idea of like kashrut, right? Like having kids learn how to wait is just imperative, right? The marshmallow test, right? Of of um, of how how to get folks, uh, children to to know how to kind of curb their impulses, you know, all the time, um, you know. So I think that it it sets. But, but being able to ask ourselves, what's this in service of? Um, is it in service of a bigger teaching or value that I want them to really learn? And they're gonna learn it in all sorts of ways and me you know, putting a ghoul or a boundary um, is one of them. Um, or is it in service of like, of me, you know, of me not feel, feeling insecure as a parent and wanting my children to respect me and what I say and, uh, um, you know, just because, um, uh, so so that's a, that's a little bit of what I'm thinking about there. I also think there's something about um, the religious personality of children, you know, and the importance of cultivating um, the religious personality of our kids. You know, I, I Lisa Miller writes a lot about this um, PhD. She wrote the um, the spiritual child, and she writes a lot about this this sense that. You know, children have a spiritual intelligence that oftentimes parents don't know how to cultivate in the same way that we know how to cultivate their um, logical intelligence, their, you know, spatial reasoning, their, um, you know, um, reading intelligence, et cetera. There are all sorts of other intelligences or social or emotional intelligences that we want them to cultivate. But oftentimes parents don't, um, you know, really don't know how to cultivate their, their spiritual intelligence. And what she says is that there is ingrained as and, and ready to be developed as every other intelligence that there is. So I think that, a I think about that a lot in terms of, um, about, I think about that a lot in terms of culti them cultivating a prayer life as well. So the one piece of it is modeling, you write us a modeling for them. But another piece is how can we bring prayer and prayerfulness into the everyday, not only in the prescribed times, right? Not only um, in the morning and in the evening, not only on Shabbat or during the Chagim, but all the time. And what does that mean? That means noticing that means being grateful. That means saying thank you, but not in the say thank you because you have to say thank you kind of thing. But um, but just like, what do you want to be thankful for? Like, what happened to you? Like, just now, a few minutes ago, today, um, that you're that you notice that you were grateful for. What do you find? You know, this is a favorite activity of. Um, of ours that my kids are now older, so they and they're Israeli, so they're getting a little cynical. But, um, but when they were younger, it was just like riding to school in the morning, and asking them to to notice what they found beautiful. Um, you know, the um, Julia who wrote in about the mountains and wanting to just you know say how pray because of the beauty that that she saw. But to invite our kids to say that too, or to notice that also, um, you know, if you go out on a walk with your kids, you know, have them all go off 
and um, and and kind of look around and like come, do like a beauty scavenger hunt, and then come back and share what were three things that they found beautiful or or like fascinating, you know, in the natural world, like those kinds of just bringing that consciousness into our everyday can sometimes shift us from the entertainment laden reality of our kids' lives, you know, um, which is very screen heavy or the consumer, you know, nature of their lives to the more appreciative and thankful, you know, or cultivating those appreciative and thankful qualities of theirs. Um, so that's something else that I'm thinking about a little bit. I'm wondering for, for other folks, if there's anything that's coming up for you as we're speaking that you want to share out, um, where prayer meets you, maybe, you know, times when you found it really hard to pray or that this doesn't actually relate at all to you um, or to your kids. You know, is there anything that, that comes up for you? We'd love to hear. I think that when I'm, I'm just noticing, um, you know, the different generations that are here on this call together. Um, and, and I'm also wondering about that intergenerational piece um, that, you know, what does it mean not only to experience prayer as something that is upon us parents to give over to our kids, but something that are, you know, that we can look to our own parents for, you know, when were they prayerful? What did they kind of, what was their relationship to, um, to God or to, 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 to that kind of connection, you know, to something a little bit greater than, than themselves. Um, you know, I, I love, you know, I think that this, sometimes um, I feel like as parents, so we feel like all of the burden is on us, right? Um, to do everything, to model everything. And I think that inviting in the intergenerational relationship means that we as parents can kind of open up. We're like, we're like the, the portal that can open up um, this connection to history for our kids. And for our parents, we can open up a connection to eternity, you know, that our children represent, right? That they represent this future, you know, that, um, that, that our parents might not ever know. Um, looking at what, what Pam is writing in, um, she says that her mother had a constant relationship um, with prayer and with God, and it shaped your belief and the need to understand prayer as a conversation with God, and that I can always reach out, especially at the darkest of times. Um, I think it's beautiful. I, I, I'll share that my grandmother, I remember she wasn't a religious woman, and I always found this so interesting, but every everything that happened, she would say, you know, it was God's will or thank God, um, you know, or God is great. That was her line. And, and that was what a radical statement, right? Everything God is great. I mean, that's a really difficult thing to, to stomach. Um, but it actually is a really deep religious idea, right? That everything um, is, you know, both good and bad, um, you know, is, 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 you know, potentially a part of it, some divine will that we're able to, to relate to. Um, but beautiful. Um, any, any other ideas or thoughts that kind of come up for you? Here. And I was, I think that one of the other things that I'm thinking about is on um, this, you know, you know, how varied this prayer life is, right, of ours. Um, you know, that, that there is, um, you know, that, that there are these like kind of two modalities, um, certainly in traditional prayer, on the one hand, um, I, you know, us praying from a prayer book is, is us speaking to God. Um, and then, you know, oftentimes we also have this Torah reading during our, during the services or coming up for Rosh Hashanah, and that's really God speaking to us. And, and I, I love that also that, that dual approach, right? That we can, at some points, we can be the ones that are saying, they're pleading, that are calling out. 
Um, and then other times that we can just be open to what are the words saying to me, right? What needs to actually enter me? And I find for myself that there are just like so many words in the machzor. It's like too much, you know? Um, what would it mean to just focus on one or two? Recently, I had an experience that I was having difficulty with one of my kids and I went for a walk and I found myself repeating the line, um, you know, God, the soul that you have given me is pure. And it was just like this re-centering experience that I had, right? That if I could just go for a walk and just meditate on this idea, I have a pure soul, each of my kids have pure souls. My husband has a pure soul. Um, that it just shifted the perspective, right? That, and it also, it's like this. This, it's like a, a um, you know, the, this gasoline like filling up this tank, you know, that that gives you koach and energy to be able to to move forward. Um, so I want us to think, maybe to, to shift a little bit, um, Shmuley, if there's something that you want to share or, or, or a question you want to ask, you definitely jump in. I would love to hear. Amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, um, I think that there, you've given us so much to work with here. And um, it's both uplifting and challenging and um, uh, and just so profound about how to think about this internal life and how it how it intersects with this external life and um, and the importance of modeling and um, responding and um, you know on the one hand when you talked about the nishima and the nishama we can think about the universality there and how we're all interconnected. On the other hand, in parenting, we know that every person is so different. Every child is so different. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how you think about that, it, it, that shifting, because it's one thing to be in a one-on-one -on -one relationship, but when you're, when you're engaging with your three children together, mm -hmm there's different soul connections and you almost want to bring your different presence to each of them. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how you think about that group space mm -hmm. in this mm -hmm. regard. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important question. Just sorry, one more thing just to build off it. Like yeah. at Sinai, we say that, that the revealer revealed different dimensions to each person. Each person mm -hmm. heard differently. And like, I wonder, like, to imitate that, like, how do we speak differently, engage differently when we're all together, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I think that, I think it's a great question because, right, it's a, the easiest, you know, I would always, I'd love this idea. <laughs> I mean, I always thought that this is always such a cop-out, right? When anyone says, you know, what is the way, how do you deal with, um, with sibling rivalry, you just spend time alone with each kid. And it's like, oh yeah, that will do it. You know, like actually just like, absolutely just like cut out the interaction between everyone, you know? Um, so, so I think that that's definitely like the common way is to not have the group space, right? Where we have to like be juggling like all these dynamics all the time. And to say like, it's much easier to say like, I'm just gonna be one-on-one -on -one with you now and I'm gonna engage with you in that way and you're more intellectual or you're more emotional or you're more fun and silly or you're really cynical or whatever. And they're different ages and stages and your younger kids and your older kids and the preteen and the so different. So I think that in terms of, you know, the group space is, is ultimately life is lived in groups, right? And uh, no matter what, right? Unless you're monastic and you're just, you know, you know, live on your own, likely you're actually going to have to interact with other people. And so I think that, you know, sometimes group space can be really painful. It can be really painful because everyone is just jockeying and vying for attention. And, you know, they want to be like, you know, the most, you know, to stand out the most or to like take up that space in, in the group, in the group setting. And they're going to. Um, 
I think that this the um, this kind of a soulful perspective would say yes each of you are different and individual and guess what each of the ways you're acting and interacting are life lessons for each other about how to act and interact you know we've we had this we had this talk the other Friday night we're like here's the deal guys you're all gonna always annoy each other you know it just it's just it's gonna happen. I'm gonna annoy you, you're gonna annoy us. Like that's what's gonna happen in our family life. And this is an exercise in letting go and like not being triggered and not being annoyed all the time. And what does it mean to like, in Hebrew we say live a tear and just like kind of let it go. And so I'm thinking about like what, how can we maximize in those group settings to see like there will be conflict, there will be difficulty, it will be hard to like wear a million different hats for each kid all the time. And we can't, and it's impossible. Um, but how can we look at it and say, what are the lessons that you can learn? Because we are, this is the laboratory for what does it mean to be a person in the world? Like this is the microcosm of, you know, uh, of organized community is our family, right? Where everyone has different roles and different, um, you know, different uh, personalities and all of that. So, so I think that that's, that's the, the perspective shift. Um, it doesn't make it easier, um, you know, but it makes it, it helps us take a step back and kind of frame it in a bigger way um, because it doesn't go away. And, and so all of the stuff about how are we kind to each other? How do we show up? How can I model with my partner? Or, you know, if I'm, if I am parenting on my own, um, you know, how can I model the kind of behavior that I want to see my kids have? Sometimes it'll work. Sometimes it doesn't. I was shocked to know recently from my husband that sometimes I have bad energy in the family. I'm like, I have the best energy in the world. It's like, I have the best energy in the world talking to all of you, but when I'm aggravated, I don't have the best energy in the world, you know? And obviously that, that, um, that affects the dynamic, right? That affects the dynamic and that's what the kids see also. So, so I think a lot of this, it's not solving, it's about bringing a sense of awareness to how I contribute to a dynamic, how I can have perspective on the dynamic, how I can try to model and show up in the best way that I want my kids to, to experience the dynamic, um, how I can share stories of how our siblings, like or my sister and I fought like cats and dogs as children, and now we're the best of friends. And that, by the way, siblings are just going to like be there for each other, the longest relationship of anyone else they'll have, you know, and just all of that perspective um, can just, you know, be brought to bear on, on what we see unfolding before us in the drama of our family lives. Um, amazing. Amazing. We have time for one last question. If there is one, Okay, friends, we hope you will check out this book, this amazing book, Becoming a Soulful Parent. Um, and, and not only read it, it's a blessing that there's activities in there. You can really spend time with it. And that's uh, one of the amazing added benefits. Uh, thank you, Dasi, for this awesome session. And um, we wish everyone a Shana Tova, rejuvenating, soulful, healthy upcoming year. Amen, amen. Thank you so much for having me. Take care, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.